They're all here. The divas, princes, and living legends you should be obsessed with. Sitting down with me. I'm David Goldberg. These are the Luminaries. After stealing the show on Netflix's The Politician, Ryan J. Haddad brings his solo show, Falling for Make Believe, to Joe's Pub, January 8th through January 17th. He joins me to talk about retelling his origin story. Ryan Haddad, welcome to the podcast. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm fabulous. Thank you for schlepping here. Oh my gosh, of course. Anything. Anything for publicity. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you live in the city? I live in the East Village, um, which is kind of a lie. Um, But I live just above the East Village, but I don't want to say that so i say east village right so kind of in like that jappy like sty town okay yeah so there's a lot of jewish girls there um i mean i i'm certainly not looking at girls but right right <laughs> there's a lot of men who work there's a lot of finance. college finance people men and college students and um well there's one neighbor who i is just like the most charming oh. middle-aged business type and i'm so into it, and I keep being like, do you have a ring on your finger? But I don't have to say that. I just am, like, scouting to look. And I've decided that, like, the last time I saw him, I was so, like, magnetized by him that I was just, I've decided that I was going to say, the next time I was going to say, like, would you like to, like, I think you're very charming. Would you like to have a drink with me? Knowing nothing about his personal life or his sex. I was, I think I was going to lead with, like, do you live alone or do you live with family? Because if you said I live with, like, my wife, I would be like, no. But if he's this bachelor, I wouldn't be like, have a oh, drink yeah. with me. And I, so I resolved that the next time I see him, I was going to say that. And then I haven't seen him in three weeks because I made that decision in my head. Right. And the universe is like, no, you will not. <laughs> You're being protected. Yeah. <laughs> That's a shame. He could have been like a Patrick Bateman type. I don't know who that is, darling. The American Psycho. Oh. Unless you're like Christian Bale really uh, hot, he'd murder you, which oh. would be hot. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, fine. I I was going to there were some things I was going to say, but I <laughs> I stopped. <laughs> oh, I just hit the microphone. Isn't that fun? It's all right. Um Bum, so you are uh, just a few weeks out from doing your Under the Radar show at Joe's Pub. And if I'm correct, this is not your first solo show at Joe's Pub. Sure. Um, yes. It is certainly not my first solo show, period. It is absolutely not. Um, at Joe's Pub, I did the same show a year ago. Okay, but did it so have a I different did, title? No, it was oh, the same okay. title. Um, it was called, it's called Falling for Make Believe. Okay. And I did it for one night. Um, they had initially been hesitant to program it because literally it's all show tunes. There's not a single, you know, pop song or rock, rock ballad or, you know, smooth jazz, nothing. It's all musical theater. And Joseph was like, we don't really do that here. Um, and I was like, trust me, it's okay. Also, I'm in your emerging writers group, so you... <laughs> must like I was in the public theaters emerging writers group not the Joe's Pub I working so group but I was like yeah but being in the writers no, group with my family like, that I guess the servers we'll one night and as we'll they were giving people does. their checks they were crying at the end of the show um, and you know maybe that's what I was going for so uh, it worked it was effective and Joe's Pub 
realized that, yes, it is shrouded in show tunes, mm. uh, but it is a family story with a narrative, a chronological narrative. It's not a plot-driven thing, but it's it's a very specific period of my childhood, and um, and it, it has an emotional impact uh, because the story uh, takes center stage to the music. So within a week, uh, Joe, uh, <laughs> so within a week, Alex Knowlton, the director of Joe's Pub, and Mark Russell, the director of Under the Radar, were like, we want you to do the show a year from now in UTR. And that was cute. Um, <laughs> so it is the same show I did a year ago at Joe's Pub. It is not my first time in Under the Radar, okay. however. I was in Under the Radar. It's part of the incoming series in uh, 2017 with my first solo play, which is called Hi, Are You Single? Um, That's what I thought. Okay. And so I'm re- I am returning in some capacity, and I am returning to Joe's Pub. It's just not that I'm bringing a new... A new show to Joe's about. So um, from Hire You Single to... Um, the, falling for Make for, Believe. To Falling for Make Believe, uh, what was the kind of change? Uh, or, or what changes did you notice from your first time doing something there to returning? Uh, I think that I was so... The first time... That had been the biggest thing I'd done in New York. Under the Radar had been the biggest thing I had done in New York. And I felt uh, so desperately that I wanted, hi, are you single to have an off-Broadway run? Mm -hmm. I still desperately want, hi, are you single to have an off-Broadway run? And it has not. Um, Someday, some theater who has said no a bunch of times is going to realize that, you know, television is... uh, ahead of the curve and has uh, propelled me forward beyond theater, <laughs> what theater has, and then they'll decide, oh, now that you're somewhat famous, we're going we're gonna to program you. But I remember uh, in January 2017 doing my one performance uh, or my two performances on one day uh, in Incoming at Under the Radar, I thought this was make or break. I put a lot of pressure on myself and I thought if uh, an off-Broadway run does not come out of this, then it will never happen for this show, Hire You Single. Um, And I can tell you now that three years later, um, almost three years later, uh, though it hasn't happened, I do know that it will happen Uh, and I, uh, because I don't, feel the need for quite the same trajectory with this cabaret uh, falling for make-believe. Maybe it will have a run. Maybe it will, you know, some right. producer will pick it up and, and I'll do five shows a week or something somewhere, uh, which would be lovely. Um, but I'm not going in with dreams that it will... You know, I'm not going in with pressure on myself. Maybe there are dreams. Maybe there's a there's an album or there's a, a special uh, on television or maybe there is a, a longer run. But it's not make or break. It's not um, in the sense that 
because in 2017, it was the biggest thing that had happened to my career. I was like, well, it's either this or it's over. But I know now that I have 16 things going on. I'm juggling all kinds of projects. Uh, my career is on sort of this upward climb. And this show in Joe's Pub is going to be a wonderful time. And I want everybody to come. I want, I've never had to sell 180 seats four times before. Um, that's, you know, uh, 180 times, not 18 times four. Uh, is nine times eight, se 720 seats. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I did well at math at one point in my life. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm a little, that's a little nerve wracking because your, uh, the earnings are contingent on the ticket sales. Right. And I want to pay my collaborators, have to pay my collaborators. You know, right. that's a non-negotiable thing. So, um, I'm happy to be here to talk about Falling for Make Believe. <laughs> but now you have me talking about the business and the nitty gritty. I don't have the pressure on myself at uh, almost 28 or 28 when this uh, podcast drops. I I don't know. January 3rd is my birthday. Um, oh, Fab, you're a Capricorn like Henry. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. I, love, I, I, love, I love Henry so much. And Henry is doing half the shows at Joe's Pub, so it's going to be amazing, beautiful to collaborate with him. So to rewind a little, when uh, after Hire You Single, after right. you put those kind of doomsday scenario stakes on yourself, because I've done that many, many times and it never has ended well, yeah. what happened after the show? Well, things did happen. I'm not, okay. It's not – it didn't happen in New York. What I wanted is that it would happen in New York. But um, Under the Radar was wonderful because so many people come from – all over the country, all these presenters, uh, part of Under the Radar, Under the Radar, and then also the APAP conference, which is not the same, but they happen at the same time and they overlap on purpose. APAP. Um, I, if I could tell you, I would. American producers of American producers. For sure, yeah, for yeah, sure, yeah, for totally. sure. Um, I should know, um, but it's about presenters from around the country who aren't going to necessarily produce your show, but they want a show that's, they want to see a show that's already on its feet that they can plug and play in their spaces right. for a week or a weekend or a month or whatever it is from around the country, from around the world. Um, and wow. so those things did happen. Uh, and it takes time. Like they see my show in January of 2017 and then in 2018, because of the time, because they like, it takes time. I had several bookings, not necessarily because every person that booked me was in the room and under the radar, but just that like being in under the radar puts you on a national stage in a way that like people are seeing what's in that booklet. People right. are seeing and they're scouting in that way, just literally based on the pamphlet. So I went in 2018 to, um, uh, the Cleveland Playhouse. I went to Stanford University, a, a program called Stanford Live, which is their performing arts presenting series. Um, I went to a gay bar in North Carolina through a wonderful organization called VAE Raleigh, which I love. Um, it was very site-specific because Hire Your Single is all about gay bars. Uh, and there I was in a gay bar. Amazing. Um, excuse me. And then... Um, I went in January, uh, February of 19 to the Guthrie uh, to do the show in Minneapolis. So I, 
of taking it around the country as a result of being an under the radar. And that's also one of the goals of of being back with this show. It, or it's frankly is the goal of the the program that is under the radar itself right. is to get these artists other work around the country and around the world get um their under the radar voices to see seen by a larger audience uh and so things did happen but i'm still sitting here going when is my off-broadway run happening to the point where i've now written a solo a companion play like a, a kind of a sequel second act um, they're two separate distinct one act plays but I now am like wow now I have another one <laughs> and maybe I'll do them in rap or maybe I'll do them with an intermission in between uh, because so much time has passed and my work is autobiographical so like I amassed more life experience a major life experience specifically um, to be able to say oh there's another play here and I think they talk to each other. Uh, so I'm grateful that time has passed. Right. Uh, and I couldn't have told you that three years ago. Uh, and this time, I'm just going in and having fun. As long as my collaborators get paid. Right. Uh, and the, the show l- lands for the reason that, reasons that I made it, which I'll, I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, that's all that matters to me at this juncture. It sounds like you're at a place where you definitely have that end game and that dream still there of yeah. of it being off Broadway, but it's not uh, like a looming specter that's terrorizing no, you. No, because I know that it will happen. <clears throat> I know Amazing. that it will happen. I know that. Um, <laughs> I know that the American theater is obsessed with stardom, and I'm not a star yet. I was certainly not a star three years ago, and I'm not a star yet uh eventually it will become clear that i have something to say and that the theater should pay attention and produce my work uh it just hasn't happened yet but maybe if you talk to me a year from now i'll Things will be different listen i've been reading a lot of sarah shulman so i'm kind of on one as it is but I have been feeling for a while, going back to what you're saying, that somehow TV, in some bizarro reality that we're in, TV has far surpassed theater in terms of experimental ideas and um, risks and kind of more diverse faces. Not, not, uh, Not wholesale, not in every single arena, but I do feel like more and more of the theater I've seen over the last two years, I've been like... Okay, yeah, um, I've seen this before. And when what you just said about how TV has kind of started to see you in a way that theater hadn't, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on that. Right. Um, well, it's a credit to Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk and Ian Brennan, who are the creators of The Politician, for envisioning my character as someone with cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. And then actively seeking an actor with cerebral palsy. Uh, and they have the room. They have the budget. They also have the stars. I mean, literally Jessica Lange, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Platt right. are in the show. So, like, <laughs> they, they can make space 
for other kinds of voices, you know, uh, and other kinds of representation because they have the market marketability that I think theater is that theater feels it must have in order to sell tickets. Mm. Um, and even just, so we're here to talk about a show called Falling for Make Believe, but I'm happy to talk about How Are You Single because I, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a piece of activist theater that's very important to me. It's also largely what has paid my bills over the past several years, um, in terms of these touring, gigs, these touring gigs. Um, you know, I became a freelance artist in May of 2017 when I quit my uh, survival job as a customer service uh, agent, and I was just like, "I'm I'm gonna die, so I have to <laughs> leave." <laughs> and uh, and and some months as a freelance artist are difficult. Yes. And where is it coming from? I'm there, right? Now. How do you eat? <sighs> some months are great, and you're and the months that are great have up until the television really kicked uh, have been because of my solo work. How Are You Single is a show about sexuality, disability, and being horny all the time and was created as a, a way to sexualize uh, my body as a gay man with cerebral palsy in a way that I had not seen before on stage or on film or on television. And now... We exist in 2019 where Ryan O'Connell, who is a different Ryan with cerebral palsy uh, and is lovely and charming and funny uh, and so endearing to watch, went from writing a blog to writing a memoir to writing a TV show. For Netflix as also. A vehicle, <laughs> as a vehicle for himself. Also for Netflix. Yeah. And we have the first gay Disabled, specifically cerebral palsy, sex scene on television. It happened. On the show special. It happened on special. Right. <clears throat> and it was groundbreaking and I cried watching it. My God. Right? right? There have been people who've been talking about this for years. Before before Ryan and Ryan, like both of us, <laughs> and before it's been happening for years. But why... I wonder why um, a show that has been picked up and toured around the country for a weekend here, a weekend there, a week here, a week there, uh, about sex and disability has not been deemed diverse enough or not deemed uh, marketable enough or edgy enough when I can't think of the last uh, play I saw in which uh, disabled body was actively, hungrily sexualized. Mm. Uh, and, and so it does exist on TV now. <laughs> and I'm very grateful... Uh, for Ryan and people like Ryan, the many, many, many people have come before us in many arenas, whether they be gay or straight, to just continue to um, smash the box of disability. 
and say, no, this is actually who we are. We're not who you think we are. We're not here to just inspire you. We are here to live full human lives that include a lot of sex for many of us. Not everyone, right? Um, I, I did a... I talk a lot about sex in... I talk a lot about sex to the like with the audience mm-hmm. in Hire You Single. Um, and once in Cleveland, uh, which is also my hometown, when I went to the Cleveland Playhouse, uh, I was asking these sexual questions. And like two or three people just decided that it was cool not to respond. And I'm like, it's not cool. This is the first five minutes of the play. You have to help me set the tone. So then I went to my college friends who were there and I was like, okay, guys, you gotta, you gotta do it because these people aren't answering. But then in the talk back, somebody said, the reason I didn't answer your question is because I, I am not in fact horny all the time. I am asexual. And they didn't say that. I don't, and I, I can't remember. And so I don't want to misspeak to say that like, they whether or not that person was also happened to be disabled um in my memory they were not at least visibly disabled they were not um i couldn't tell by looking at them um i think and my response to that is correct i shouldn't be making these hyper generalizations about all people all disabled people are this or all gay queer people are this um and that's correct but what I push back on is asexual is what the default societal uh, thought around disability is. Mm. They assume that we are asexual because we are disabled. And that is a misconception that could not be further from the truth. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. And um, so Hire You Single is about a young uh, college age man who is, his name is Ryan (laughs) and he is uh, gay and disabled and he is trying to find a date. He's trying to find hookups. He's trying to find any avenue of pleasure and also intimacy that he can. And it is difficult because of his disability, um, and because of the ways that the gay queer community uh, marginalizes within itself. Um, and then the show turns and pivots to show you that the character of Ryan, I also me, um, is or has been just as guilty of similar forms of discrimination uh, that aren't related to disability but are equally shallow and fucked up uh and it's and then the sequel yeah that's what i was about to ask is about uh one person Mm -hmm. it's about uh it's about the joys and uncertainties of first love and so you go from uh what may or may not be called act one or part one uh in which this you know series of men come in and out with, you know, two minutes with one person, three minutes with another person, in, out, in, out, in a matter of an hour, you know, you haven't been introduced to this cast of characters, even though I'm standing on stage by myself. Um, and then in part two or act two or whatever uh, you want to call it, um, because they are standalone plays, it is one, it's the story of 
of Ryan and one other man. And, uh, and it's a real sort of zoom in and it's much deeper and more intimate. It's kind of like film acting, Mm. uh, when I do that. Uh, and we just had the first reading of that piece like a week ago. So it's very raw and new and, you know, that'll take some time to further develop, but I hope that New York will soon see, you know, those two plays either separately or together because uh, I'm very proud of both of them. And I think that my, my agenda to uh, show people what they haven't seen before or show people, even if they have seen it before, that there are so many different ways in which disability is sexy and that dating should not be hard for me just because you have trouble seeing my body or bodies of people like me or going beyond the body because disability has so many forms. It includes mental, emotional, uh, intellectual, uh, and all kinds of, you know, invisible disabilities that are not physical, but just the stigma of disability plus romance or plus love or plus fucking is, uh, is just a hill that we've got to climb or a mountain. Um, because we as a, as a, as a culture, disabled people as a culture are just as hungry for and worthy of uh, romance and intimacy and passion and love and relationships as all of the rest of everyone else. Yeah, not to like memify your experience, but I think something I've noticed uh, towards the end of this year with the phenomena of Pete Buttigieg and also with the new Broadway show The Inheritance, which to be clear, I have not seen. There, I have, and I'm not here to talk about okay, the inheritance. We're not going to talk about it, but <laughs> there is what I'm noticing, I think, is in the world of gay men, there is this conversation happening about like what kind of stories about us are being told, and do we find these stories as gay men about us interesting? And more and more, I'm seeing the answer is no, this is not representative of us. This is not new. This is not interesting. This is not what we need you know, to be absorbing as art. And I do think there's more and more of a critical mass of a gay audience that's wanting something that's actually relevant, pushing a boundary, um, and not just rehashing this kind of marketable uh, middle America uh, new user-friendly version of us, but actually can show complexity. So in that regard, I, I really think and hope that theater is going to learn from TV and get like hot and cool. Yeah. I mean, I said I wasn't going to talk about the inheritance, but I did like, I was very moved. I cried. I think the writing is gorgeous. And I also wished that I could see myself up there. Mm. Not me, you know, I mean, uh, 
I wanted to get an audition and they wouldn't give me one. Mm. Uh, but it didn't matter. It doesn't matter because I'm doing, I'm doing other things. I'm not available. I would not have been available to be in the inheritance. Fabulous. So it isn't about, it's not just about me. It's about the fact that there are, uh, you know, a dozen gay characters on that stage and not a single one is uh, visibly disabled. Or, uh, and, and that, um, it's just, there's a lot of sameness in a lot of different ways about that production. And many of the, I'm using that as an example, but many of the gay productions I've seen over the last five years have that issue of sameness. Right. And I... You know, I I just Yeah. That's all. Yeah. I'm not here to get on a soapbox. I am here to tell you that it did really move me and that the play is a beautiful play. Uh and that I just wished there was more um types of people and bodies and experiences represented on the stage to reflect the beauty of the writing. Yeah, I I use that as an example. I mean, I think about one of my favorite shows, which is obviously a very messy show, but I I was a, and I'm, you know, I'm a devotee to the Wachowskis and I loved Sense8. I don't know if you watched it. I have no idea. Any words that just came out of it. Okay, there's a Netflix show called Sense8 that's like kind of trashy, kind of ridiculous, but it's by the creators of The Matrix. And essentially everyone is queer, everyone is hot, everyone is of a different background and it did feel like, oh, this is what the future would be like. And I do feel like the rest of the culture is kind of lagging behind. Um, so now you are preparing to return to Joe's Pub with um, Falling for falling Make believe. believe, which I have written this down six times. For some reason, I keep uh, spacing falling out. Falling in love with love is falling for make-believe. There we go. There it is. It's a Rogers and Hart lyric. So um, I'd love to hear about the genesis of this show. Yes. Um, well, the the plot of the show is that there's no plot. I said there was no plot. I already <laughs> said that. Uh, but the story of the show is that starting at the age of five, up until I was 13, so for eight years, I artistic directed uh, a family backyard theater troupe called the Head Ed Theater, you know, self-named the Head Ed Theater. Uh, started in the living room, moved to the backyard, ultimately ended up on the stage of the community center because I had big, big dreams and aspirations. Uh, I asked my grandfather to build me a stage, thinking he was going to build me like the Vivian Beaumont or Schubert Theater or something, and he built me a wood frame <laughs> with with uh, the curtains that my grandmother had sewn for me, and uh, it was like the size of a puppet show stage. But I was like, "This is it. We have a theater." And I so instead of like acting out plays alone in my living room, which is what I had been doing through you know before I had consciousness. Now at five with the stage, I was like, I, I'm, an, I'm a director now and I'm going to put people in place. So I made my family act, like literally forced them um, at five and six and six. And then there was a little break and then it continued um, at, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. Uh, and so th- these aren't people who wanted to act. <laughs> 
Not a single one was like hungry to be on stage. But they just knew that I wanted an outlet to tell stories and they loved me and they wanted me to thrive. So they allowed themselves to continually make fools of themselves. Uh, and they quite enjoyed it, you know, after a while. They, they, it became fun. If not a lot of work, it also was fun. And what I've learned is that these memories uh, don't just belong to me. They also belong to every person who was ever in one of our plays. And that the people reflect on them in with great warmth and positivity, even if I was like a monster of a child and was like, you stand here! You know? Like, oh my God. I was a devil. Um, and it's really unusual that... I just think it's such like an unusual uh, time capsule or yeah. like bastion of memories to have in your family. I assume they're oh, very it is. thankful And that's that. what... Yeah, they are. They're like, well, we never... And it took different sides. My mother's side, my father smashed them together and like, oh God, you know, you're playing my daughter. You're playing... You're playing the prince. You're playing this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some highlights included uh, our... our our final two shows were very ambitious. One disastrously so, and one like with great success. Uh, the the second to last, the penultimate, and the greatest failure was uh, <laughs> an adaptation of All About Eve, titled All About Ed, in which I played Ed. Uh, they thought the Evo one in London was bad. Okay. Um, I didn't see it. I wanted to. I really did. I wonder why Kate dropped out. Anyway. Um, wow, I'm just spilling a lot of tea. Um, Scalding. Woo! Um, but it was bad. Mine was bad because I didn't know that when you literally stole one of the greatest screenplays of all time and chopped it into one hour, that you should, in the midst of chopping, uh, consolidate the locations. Oh, okay. So I was like, you know, we're here, we're here, we're here, we're here. And I had all these like grand ideas of layouts of scene changes for, and it wasn't a complicated set. It was like, how how can we take these chairs and put them together to be a couch or put them right. together to be a bed or put them together? What, what, what are we doing here? Um, I just didn't tell anyone what those scene changes <laughs> were or... When they came. And by this time, I was 13 years old. So you thought I had a little more maturity. But I was just like, oh, they'll know. When I say living room, they know what I mean. Right. I was the same, though. And I guess because you, you get even more references and you still haven't developed any context. So you just keep. Exactly. And so I just, like, every location in the movie was in the play, even though it was an hour shorter. Mm. And there was no map of, like, we will reveal this room by pulling this curtain. Like, it was literally just a nightmare. And so the scene changes were as long or longer than the the actual te text of my bastardized All About It. Then the final show was an adaptation of Annie called Andy. <laughs> I was 13 with braces. I wore a red button-down shirt and black pants instead of a red dress. Amazing. Uh, saying the sun will come out tomorrow, like down the octave, of course, or whatever. I don't know where my voice was at 13, but I 
you know, sang it to whatever the backing track was. And it was good because I learned from my mistakes. And it doesn't mean that everybody hit every note correctly. It doesn't mean that everybody even knew what the melodies of their songs were as they were singing them. However, um, I knew that the orphanage had to be in front of the Warbucks mm. mansion. And that when then when we would pull the screen back and the and and then there would be the mansion. And then all we would have for Miss Hannigan's office was a rolling desk that was on wheels. Like I planned the where the scene changes were so that I could say, and now you move the table and you move right. the screen and you pull the curtain. And so it was actually a tight hour version of Annie. And it was really lovely, and it was a nice way to end eight years of time together. They all wanted to end after All About Ed. They were like, this was, my God. And I said, I can't do that. I can't. Yeah, it's your legacy. My narrative of this, of this, this story cannot end with Ryan failing. <laughs> so the story ended with Ryan singing The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow. With braces on my teeth, not just on my legs. So now that you're looking back, um, well, I have to ask because I'm doing a solo show, my first solo show ever in January. And I'm just curious how you do this of looking back without getting either too maudlin or too angry or falling back. Why would I be angry at my family for loving me? Okay, I'm going to spend some time with that one um, <laughs> off air. <laughs> I guess what I'm curious about, because, you know, you and I did Spirit Night together at Joe's Pub in October with Henry and Larry, and when you did your song, I was like, okay, here's another faggot talking about his grandma. I'm going to go to sleep now. But actually, it was incredible. I was so moved. I was wiping tears. The audience was in the palm of your hand. We were all with you because you were actually very present and actually, like, it clearly you meant what you were saying. And it of surprised course. me. But, but, I, but I talk about their life or their family, they kind of, it's a way to go on autopilot or lean on certain tropes that they know will affect people. And I felt like you did such a good job of being present with it. Well, that's my genre. Mm -hmm. My genre is autobiographical storytelling. And my family, against their will, you know, forced into my plays as a child, is now forced into my professional stories (laughs) as an adult because they are... So I don't know how to be inauthentic. Mm. And if I'm going to tell you a story on a surface level that is only meant to tug at your heart without any purpose, what's the point? I agree. So this is all I've ever done. I don't know how to not talk about my life experience. And um, I'm glad that like I... That your perception was that I was just a you know faggot talking about my grandmother, um, but like the purpose of that, I was making a video for her to see that I was doing that. Mm. My friend was recording it the whole time, and she, in her hospital room in her rehab um, facility, over that next week watched it like. Five times. Amazing. And that's what it was for. 
Amazing. I'm glad you enjoyed it. We I'm got glad, a lot out of I'm it. I'm glad you wiped your tears. But it was for her. And I think because it was for her, it is so it it it's deep and real. And like there's no bullshit. Right. right? Um whereas if it was just for you all, it would be easy, I think, maybe to to be frivolous with it. Uh and falling for make believe is the same idea. It's not for uh, the grandmother. It's for uh, my Aunt Joan. It's a show. About, we, at home, when I'm talking about it, I call it the Aunt Joan show. Obviously, that's You're like right. Lady Gaga. That's, yeah, yeah. It's for Aunt Joan. Um, Aunt Joan is still thriving and living, and she is uh, thrilled that there's a show in New York about her. Uh, so... The backdrop of the story is all these plays that we did. Mm. And the show tunes come from either the source material of the shows we did or something based off the shows that we did. There's a, you know, the transitional elements. Instead of the stories transitioning between the songs, the songs are transitioning uh, between the stories. Mm. And, uh, but it's really about her. It's really about the way that she seized this idea of the head of theater and like gangbusters came in as the complete diva, the complete, you know, she was the Meryl Streep of the head of theater. She was the uh, Tallulah Bankhead or Betty Davis. Uh, uh, Kate Blanchett. Sure. Her too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I wanted to make a tribute for her and because they're all getting old like all these people are are in their upper 80s and they weren't when these stories were happening and what can I do that they will be here to witness and to see that I appreciated them and love them and I'm grateful for what they have given me I'm sure that I'll continue to be writing about these people long after they're gone. And it'll and there'll be different stories and different manifestations. But it was very important to me to do something for them while they're here still. So this was hers. This was her gift. And that was what it's always been about. And uh, the audience who maybe have not listened to this podcast... Or, or won't have listened to this podcast when they arrive at Joe's Pub January 8th to 17th, are not going to know in the first 20 minutes that the show is a gift for Aunt Joan. By the end of it, you'll know. And that is why the audience, uh, why the, the servers wipe the tears, or wiping the tears from their eyes. And it might, it's not going to make every person cry. It's not, and it's not, uh, so sentimental that like it that has to happen right but it is a gift and i think that when you are watching a gift unfold or unwrap wow look at these metaphors um you're sitting there as is true of all of my solo work if we're talking about the show in which i uh 
that is about first love. You are sitting there hearing my story. Also, you are reliving and replaying your first love continuously while I'm talking. So that when you are watching me unwrap the gift for Aunt Joan on the stage of Joe's Pub over 90 minutes, you are realizing who is that for me? Who was that in my life? It doesn't have to be a biological family member. It doesn't have to be a relative. It doesn't have to be somebody who's even older than you. But someone in your life did for you what she did for me and continues to do. And that is why it's moving. Because you don't know her. You've never met her before. But you know who did it for you. And that is why. And so the gift is to both of us it's the gift is I get to do this for her she gets to experience it not that she's coming to New York but she did see it the very first time I did it I knew Joe's Pub was happening a year ago mm. I knew it was happening on February 8th I think it was um, and we're opening 11 months to the day for under the radar January wow. 8th uh, but I knew that and so uh, the warm up or the tryout happened at a, at a music space in Cleveland uh, right before Christmas, December 20th. And so they were all there. The family all came out. And Joan wore her best attire. You know, she was sparkling. And she was waving whenever, you know, Amazing. they said her name. And she just ate it up. She loved that she's not sitting, she's not on the stage anymore, right? But she's still the star. And that is what the gift is. And I think all my shows that are about people, because uh, Hire You Single is about me. The first love story is about me and one other person, but it's really about me. Um, a couple of other things are mostly about me, but I'm starting to make these shows that are people-centric or family-centric. And... They're all gifts in their own way. Gifts are delivered in different kinds of packages, right? Um, there's a play I'm writing called Good Time Charlie, mm. which is about my gay uncle and largely about um, two generations of, of gay identity within the same family, me being the younger of the two generations and the comparison of our experiences as as gay men. Uh then you zoom out a little bit and you realize that there's a third generation and that his his best friend and his partner are 20 years older than him. So you have three generations of gay men on the stage. Plus you have uh, my aunt who is a lesbian and inextricably, you know, my gay identity was uh, fostered by both of the lesbian and the gay uncle mm. um, being fully themselves and being who they are so that I could see that as a child and know like, oh, that's okay. There's nothing wrong there. Mm. But they didn't have that, right? So that's what that play explores. And it isn't, um, it's not an easy play. It is a family comedy drama right. about that joys and the and the laughter and the darkness and so my gift to, to charlie is that i've written a play in which he's the title character and that he's the star 
But is it always easy for him to watch? Is every moment of it easy for him to watch? No. Because I'm asking him to relive some pretty dark things. Um, and he's been a great sport about it. He's also Amazing. a theater lover. He, I mean, he's a, you know, he's been seeing theater for decades. He comes to New York pilgrimages just to see what's the latest thing on Broadway, off Broadway. Um, long before I was even a specimen, let alone uh, doing this myself. Uh, so he knows, like, yeah, this needs to be tougher. This scene needs to be tougher. That's you know, extraordinary. In order for it to land. Uh, and as it has grown, he has said, yeah, act two is getting harder for me to read, which is how I know it's getting better. That's unusual. That's unbelievable. Yeah. But so his gift is not like, there's no bubble wrap and cushion and, and, uh, and marshmallows with that. Uh, and Aunt Joan's show is much, very, very palatable so that she, as somebody of a certain age, is able to see that I adore her. Charlie's is like, I adore you. And here's all the things that, all of the difficult realities that come with that. Mm. And he has been a great sport. Um, that's amazing that you could do this with his support and his collaboration. Well, I wouldn't have been able. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't have permission, or at least like, you know, did I ever sit down and say, "May I write a play about you?" No. It was like, so I'm going to write a play, and this is what I need. Yeah. And what I needed to start was 20 hours of audio recording, in which he talked about all the corners of his life that I wanted to explore. And it's really a play about both of us. And it's my first multi-character play. So it's me on stage with six other actors portraying my family. Um, but I wasn't there for his side of the story. So in order to create even what is the fiction of the version I've written, because I wrote it, it's my... Right. Yeah, I've invented... Whereas the play, the the ones that I the scenes I was in are less invention because I was there, so it's basically like how do I curate what actually happened into a scene that is funny or a scene that is this or whereas with him it's like here are and he was able we we sat for twenty hours but really it came down to here are the like three bullet points of that afternoon or that day and it could be an action it could be a phrase it could be a word and i would have to color in all the lines between that because he's not going to sit there 30 years later and go and they said this and i said right. this and it's not i think that's what i had wanted it to be in my head uh but it's been an interesting and exciting challenge uh, and the collaboration, I mean, he's not an official collaborator. His name is not, his name is in the title, but it's not like he's not getting a writing credit on this. The collaboration comes in him seeing the readings. We've done two that he's seen. We've done more that he hasn't seen. Um, and him reading drafts along with his partner, uh, Lou, and saying, you know, Yes or no, this is not exactly what happened, but it's not a question of that. It's like, does this ring true? 
does this feel like it is the essence of the truth, even if, like, you invented it? And he's been very good about taking that temperature with me. So um, you are hitting Joe's Pub January 8th through 15th, right? No, no. January 8th to 17th. Four performances, 8th, 12th, 16th, and 17th. And where can we follow you? At Ryan J. Haddad. And uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, And there's a follow button on my Facebook page, but... It's very weird when strangers try to be my friend. Yeah, that's fine. And obviously we can watch you on The Politicians season one. Yes, now absolutely. Streaming. Now streaming. Fabulous. Um, thank you for being here. I can't wait for the oh show. Oh my gosh. I feel like this whole conversation was so self-serious. Yes. And I didn't. No, but no, like I didn't make people laugh and they're not going to want to come because they're going to think he's that tyrannical disabled man. Um, just know that I'm a fun person and that the shows are fun and, um, some of, you know, what David asked me just like got a fire burning. So I was a little, I'm sorry if I was a little too soapboxy, uh, in your ears ears today on who me on you, unfortunately to have to self-advocate and advocate for a larger group. So anyways, I'm, I'm sorry for putting you in that position, but I think your you didn't. I did. I was just like, you know, I could have asked, we could have talked about, you know, pastries, but we <laughs> didn't. So, um, thank you very much for being here. Can't wait for thank your show. You, David. We'll see you then. If you enjoyed this episode of the luminaries, let me know, give me a five-star rating on iTunes, write a glowing encomium. Share it on your Instagram stories, email it to your Aunt Joan, and help make this series bigger and better with every episode. Thank you for listening, and let's grow together. See you next Tuesday. Bye-bye.